0: Mmm, that tastes so inclusive. You've just wandered in on me enjoying my special Pride Edition Costa coffee cup. It's a Costa coffee cup, but it's covered in little rainbows. If you don't buy this, then you're a bad person. Spectacles, a pop culture podcast. Opinions will be expressed in this podcast, and some of Ebba's will be full of hate. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm off to change my Facebook profile frame to a rainbow flag. Forget it, alarm. I'm already woke.
1: I hope you'll forgive me for beginning this episode on a heavyish note, but I recently discovered that I have a brain disease. You may have heard of it. Liberal guilt. Its effect encompasses a large spectrum. And on the scale of being secretly terrified of being falsely outed as racist to insufferable sanctimony as hypocrite, I fell somewhere in the middle. My symptoms included hallucinating myself as a semi-vegan rather than someone who doesn't have the dedication to actually go vegan. Perceiving the pound coin I gave to a homeless person in the street as being of more value than it was because I made a point of looking them in the eye and saying good morning as I dropped it in their cup. And having a mini heart attack whenever using the phrase person of colour in case I'd accidentally missed the memo deeming that now problematic and elected a new acceptable expression. Recent events have made me decide to fight my disease rather than just give in to it. But liberal guilt is a nasty thing to renounce because it sells itself as a good thing. Guilt comes from a place of care and care comes from a place of love. In this case, love for one's fellow citizen and their planet. Corporate advertising has always preyed on our insecurities, telling us their products are what will assuage them. But doing this with virtues and morals, messages of love, etc. is nowhere near as straightforward as doing this with selfish aspirations like beauty and social status. This is episode 14 of Spectacles, the final episode of this series, and we're discussing whether the immense investment businesses and its stakeholders have put into capitalising on social justice has cost it more than revenue. Is it costing social justice its soul? And how are we, the consumers, encouraging this? What up? I'm Eva.
2: I'm Tom. I'm Stephen. First question is, in the context of social progressivism, what is love? Do you want to kick us off?
1: love in the context of social progressivism i would say it's easier to define as the opposite of hate because we all know what what hate is it's walls instead of bridges division it's division making any kind of cultural or any kind of assumption about someone based purely on their birth circumstances or
2: well, their identity in general. Their
1: identity, yeah, um, because I suppose like religion would be would be a big one.
2: Stephen, what is love if it don't hurt me? Yeah, I was thinking about uh, pop songs too. <laughs> um,
0: love is sort of one of the most marketable emotions of all because um, it's related to sex and, therefore, it's related to passion and uh, fire. And it's also related to uh, family, so it's related to belonging and uh, having and home. And uh, in a way, love is sort of like the big unifying emotion that brings all people together. Mm. But typically, stereotypically, it's a heterosexual thing, it's a thing for man and woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, currently in contemporary society, we're having a huge debate and everyone is involved in it, whether they want to be or not, about the boundaries of who love is for and what it can look like. And uh, in a capitalist sense, it is good business to extend, uh, you know, to not just manufacture 50,000 wedding day cards at Hallmark with a man and a woman, but to manufacture 40,000 with a man and a woman And 5,000 with two men and 5,000 with two women. But you also um, broadcast this image of uh, acceptance and inclusivity and progressiveness.
1: Could I take this back a bit and just kind of reveal what uh, inspired this episode, which is uh, I'm a good person uh, and I do do good person things, uh, virtuous things, if you will. Like I go to Trump protests. I've been been to two in my life. But anyway, uh, more recently, I was uh, both Tom and I. We, we went to Glasgow to, to do the protest because uh, Trump for Trump Trump's visit to the to the UK and I suppose specifically Scotland. While I was there, and indeed while I was at the other one, and uh, you you have a great time looking at all the placards that people people bring. You got some you get some beauties, but there's one that I've seen quite consistently, which is "Love Trumps Hate." We've gone into the binary, the culture war, before. Um, and what, what that sign is, is really about is it's about how the, the left, if you will, liberals, progressives, anyone on that kind of spectrum uh, is representing love. Whereas uh, the right and everything covered in that spectrum is representing some kind of, of, of hate because the right believes in things like borders uh, in nationhood. Anyway, what you should recognise is that the binary that that sign was was promoting is to—I like to think—a person with with common sense, a clear oversimplification. It sounds a very centristy thing to say, but you can have mixed feelings on the issues of borders. You can have mixed feelings on the issues of things like gender-neutral bathrooms, on things like gender roles, on things like biology versus gender, and all the rest of it. But as with any meeting or protest, the aims to there's a struggle to deliver one unified message, and as a result, you kind of simplify anything down. But it occurred to me when I was looking at that sign that "Love Trumps Hate" is as shallow in a way and dangerous as "Make America Great Again," because it says something huge while saying. Almost nothing that, in a way, that enables everyone to just protect, uh, project their own definition of, say, love and hate, in the same way, uh, Make America Great Again lets people project their definition of great, which mm. for a lot of people meant uh, white, hegemonic, capitalist, etc. Mm-hmm. So that was the original starting place. And then, of course, the conversation um, became bigger to when we were thinking about the 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 vacuity behind it. I mean, nothing's ever been more vacuous than corporate advertising and the the ideals that they promote. Um, But anyway, that was the it came it came round to that, and that's why we've we've landed on this as a theme. Mm -hmm. So I
2: would say, in the context of social progressivism. Love means lots and lots of different things to lots of different people. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I look at a side like that, I do think the things that you're thinking about, the watered-down definitions, and I think it's important at a protest, for example, to be very clear about what it is that you are for mm-hmm. as well as what you are against. Um, love can mean environmentalism in today's... Uh, discourse, it can mean art and uh, being in love with art more than you are potentially in love with nation, in love with your identity in ways other than nationhood potentially, Um, and it can mean dialogue potentially, it can mean don't uh, threaten people with violence, it could be a sort of anti-imperialist thing, it can be an anti-war, anti-interventionist thing as well, Uh, but it, it brings together definitely lots of different wings of left-wing politics, whether that's socialism, whether that's liberalism, progressivism as a kind of thing that encompasses both of those and not both of those. It's it's, it's, it's multi-legged as a definition, um, but it is being watered down systematically, and I suppose that's also what we're talking about.
1: I, I guess what also fascinated me is... <laughs> love trumps hate so we're there pushing our agenda of love but we're united around uh, i'll openly admit you know a hatred of this man we're actually using a platform of hate to push this very politicized ideas of love and all that it connotes uh, for us for us the the lefty liberal green types in order to be tolerant to, Is it possible to tolerate intolerance or to be a tolerant society? Do you have to be intolerant of intolerance?
2: I suppose hate can also mean um, actively far right. Like We're all hyper-aware of the extremes of either end of our politics now as well. Mm -hmm. So we're very aware of far-right politics. We were aware of the Ku Klux Klan celebrating Trump's victory, etc. Hatred in its most explicit forms is often what's being condemned.
1: So, just to to state the absolute obvious, racism? Yes. Misogyny? Homophobia? Extreme Islamophobia?
0: That sign, um, I think isn't going to reach anyone on an oppo- on the opposing side, it's going to sort of bolster uh, the the sense of uh, smugness of, of the yeah, people who totally. agree with it, certainly. But um, it, it certainly doesn't display much understanding of the mindset of the Trump voter, because uh, yes, our media and progressive media in America will focus on Ku Klux Klan members and uh, trying to Tar, uh, what? however many, whatever many percentage of people end up voting for him with the same brush. When you look at someone in the face, you find that you're all a lot more similar than when you draw a great big circle around a crowd and say, these people are connected
2: with James Gunn, so they must all be paedophiles. More on that later. Yeah. Um, okay, Second thing we want to do is go through some case studies that explain in more depth the, the cultural and societal trends that we're intent on discussing. And you're going first, Eva, of the three of us.
1: Yes, I was assigned uh, the One Love Manchester concert. So to give some context, on the 22nd of May 2017, uh, a suicide bomber took the lives of 23 people and injured about 140 more at an Ariana Grande concert. They detonated a, a, a bomb, I think, that was like, lodged with shrapnel. And it was horrific. I mean, well, there's not really vocabulary for it. Ariana Grande, who was, as you can imagine, not just probably pretty traumatised herself, but racked with with a guilt, I suppose, over it, decided that she would organise another concert in Manchester. The intention of the concert is to promote peace, love and unity. I would also argue it was it was about healing as well and it was about commemoration. You know, millions and millions of people tuned in to watch it. It was absolutely, it was sold out within minutes if not seconds. There was a range of acts from Take That to Mumford and Sons, uh, Miley Cyrus, Katy Perry. It had its share of criticism, but only before it actually happened, which was strange. I was not able to find a single um, review after the event that was in any way critical of it. But prior to it... um, there had been uh, concerns expressed by the likes of uh, people like Piers Morgan, Katie Hopkins, as well those kind of people, um, and maybe some onlooking cynics um, uh, that it was too soon.
2: I think concerns <laughs> does Piers Morgan a bit too much credit. I think it's more ham-fisted tweets.
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. That that concern was with a heavy dose of irony. He just realize. really
2: wanted attention. <laughs>
1: Well he actually but, yeah. apologized. Well he didn't apologize but he he retracted actually what he had said after the concert. So it was so successful it actually pressured Pierce Morgan. Pierce Morgan.
2: <laughs> he figured out that Love yeah. Trump's hate.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, another very important thing to know about One Love Manchester is that every single penny that it grossed went to the One Love Manchester Emergency Fund set up to repair the damage of the uh, of the tragedy and to help the families of victims and uh, to the Red Cross. So this, what I should say from the outset here is that One Love Manchester it was not a cynical corporate cash grab. It was just all about Manchester and promoting this message of, of peace and love and unity. I, I didn't actually watch it at the time, I only watched it recently. But I went in feeling quite cynical myself just based on snippets of it that I'd seen but when I watched the concert as a whole I would say you know it really struck the the perfect tone the material that people were performing it had been quite I think quite curiously selected it was songs that were striking chords of triumph of togetherness uh, and healing like I said so take that came out and did things like rule the world and shine Robbie Williams um, sang "Angels" while people hel- held up signs that said "For our Angels." You know, it's very it's very moving. But what what's fascinating about One Love Manchester is just it was just the use of the word "love." The word "terrorism" was not, I think, spoken the whole the whole night. And every single message um, was stuff like "Let's not be afraid," "We will not be divided." There was a very conscious lack of specificity and the, the language used around why this concert was happening and there was a for me a quite a, a, a there was an elephant in the room aspect to it but it, it wasn't uncomfortable it was just more nobody seemed to want to try and describe it so there was this is the this is the part i'm dancing around getting to it. there was three parts that I had mixed feelings about and one of them uh, involved Justin Bieber which is when when Bieber came out onto the stage he got everyone to just put their fist in the air and chant the word love over and over again love 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 to the point where he was clearly trying to emulate a a sort of battle cry and a protest and it completely it fueled this narrative of the concert was commemoration but it was also fighting that this, this concert was actually a form of fighting back. It was fighting back in the form of, we're not scared. Um, or even if we are scared, you're not going to stop us from living our life and enjoying ourselves. I so many articles I read about this had this sort of, "Ha, huh, well, whatever terrorists want to inspire, it certainly wasn't this awesome party in Manchester. We, we've won, kind of, kind of thing. Um, and I think that's a sentiment that it, it is admirable but I, I also think it's a, it's a consciously naive sentiment. You know, you know the tragedy can never be undone. You know the, the you radical know Islamic terrorism is a horrific problem that is not going to go away by virtue of this concert. But you can see it in a certain way where everyone knows what you mean. But that, that moment with Justin Bieber rallying up this love, love, love cry, it, it really it made it look tacky. We're going to create sentiment. an
2: army of love. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it made it look like you, you could literally do You could be literally, like, love is a weapon that you can, you, you, can, you can fight with, like a sword or, or whatever. Um, then there was Katy Perry. This was the second moment that, that kind of didn't sit very well with me. When Katy Perry came out, she said utterly, like sincerely, I want you to touch the person next to you. I want you. Whether they're a stranger, whether they're very emotional, whether you're, you're they're a family member, whether they're a friend, whatever, and then look them in the eye, tell them you love them, tell them you love them, make human contact. And I think she, she legitimately thought there was going to be a kind of breaking down. When really what there was was a bit of giggling and shuffling, and I, I love you. I um, love you. Yeah. And and again, it just made it seem a bit like a. Like a joke. I mean, no one was was upset by it. It didn't ruin anything. But I just remember there was this aerial pan that the camera did at one point, and there was this guy just like uh, mouthing "I love you, I love you" to the camera in a really silly, over the top way. Cause, so they were all kind of tongue in cheek, mocking it. And again, I mean, as I've said earlier, I'm, I'm very cynical around love and hate, and that they fight each other, and that there's a and, and the that's love the is end stronger, of it. Yeah. yeah and that love is just stronger all the time. But the concert, up until those moments, had really actually managed to create a tangible love that actually did feel extraordinarily powerful, and that just just really undermined it. Um, And then the the last thing, the last moment that I found questionable was when Scooter Braun, who was a co-producer of the concert... Um, and I think he, I think he's uh, he's an associate of Ariana Grande's, if not her, her agent or manager or something like that. Um, he came out and he made a speech, and he said, uh, "This tragedy has made us throw away our divides, our differences, our politics, our adult nature to look to our children." I don't know what he means by that last thing. H- have we thrown away our adult nature we are now to look children. to our children? I don't know what he meant by the last thing, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try. Uh, then he said, "Evil will test us again." The word "evil," not terrorism,
2: jihadism. Yeah, uh,
1: it won't. It will show its face again. Uh, hatred will never win. Love trumps jihad.
2: <laughs>
0: Love so- jihad's hate. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but the the word that I was I was going to. We're going to round
0: round up everyone who hates, <laughs> put them in a camp, and make them work on hallmark cards until they bleed.
1: And drink from rainbow-striped Costa
0: Cups.
1: Yeah. But the word I was I was going to hone in there was politics. It's made us throw away our politics. And this is the other thing I, I thought where it fell down just a tiny bit, which is you can't not... You can't see this as an apolitical thing. This whole concert is one of the most political statements I've ever seen in my life. By saying it's not, um, you're actually undermining the unity. What mattered about One Love Manchester is that Everybody there was united in never wanting to see something as horrendous as this again and being in solidarity with the victims. What they were not necessarily united on was what would be a legitimate course of action to prevent this from ever happening again. And that's okay.
2: Yeah, what do you do after the concert's that, that
1: That's a great question. What would you do after it? What, what What is this? Hatred will never win. Well, it did kind of win, in a way. I mean, why why is this about winning and losing at the same time? But something that, that occurred to me is that... Now, please don't get me wrong. I think it's wonderful that, that, that all the money went to charity and, you know, obviously, our Anna Grande is free to give to whatever charity she wants. This is not her or anything. But just imagine if a significant portion of that money had gone into our de-radicalisation initiative. Hmm. Would that have changed the tone of the concert? Very good question. The second kind of point is, is that if hatred will never win, there's no here's the measures we're going to take to ensure it never wins, as you said. And I'm not saying the concert had to. I mean, what, what, does, what did the concert do? What did it have to do other than... Just lift everyone's spirits that had just been beaten so low, especially the city of Manchester. But, and you brought up politics, Scooter Braun, we didn't. And you denounced it as being a political statement when it very clearly was. If, you, if your mission in this concert was to do more than, than just heal for a night, then there has to be something yeah. tangible that you can then go on to do it's kind of occurred to me that with, with the left and with this very broad version of, of, of love, um, you know, terrorism has no religion. Um, isn't that isn't we need to fight terror and violence in all its forms, kind of like the left-wing version of All Lives Matter, in a way. That fear of honing in, of getting specific. I am not saying One Love Manchester had to do this, but that's, that's just something that's been kicking around my mind recently.
2: I know what you mean. People that it's, pick and
1: choose when to focus entirely on identity, and then to suddenly, conveniently, not want to address it at all. Both, both the, the left and the right do it, in um, at different times and for different different ways. But they're kind of.
2: I see what you mean. I mean, there's a yeah. fear of stigmatizing yeah. Muslims in particular.
1: Because, because giving to a de-radicalisation initiative would have been like the, an amazing gesture of love of. It would have been an extraordinary, like, love thy enemy, almost. So it was a very emotional experience. There was joy, sadness, there was healing. There was a we will not be afraid while acknowledging that it's it's actually okay to be afraid. I remember I read a, a review in The Guardian afterwards saying... It was it. It really showed the healing power of pop music, and you know, uh, British people aren't very good at getting all down and emotional and talking about love. But it was just really nice to to have this this dynamic of it's okay to be a little bit afraid and vulnerable right now. What I would have really liked, though, is if just one artist, just one performer, or one person that whole night had said the word anger in regards to that's an emotion that's okay to have here too. In fact, very interestingly, there was a group sing-along at the end, led by Chris Martin um, of the song Don't Look Back in Anger and I think Scooter Braun quoted a 15-year-old who was who was injured in hospital, having lost his best friend at the, at the bombing uh, and the 15-year-old um, had reportedly said to him just before he left don't go forward in anger love spreads now, while I, I completely respect the sentiment behind that, there's a difference between blind rage that leads to Islamophobia, that leads to, you know, the Casey Hopkins rhetoric of "we need a final solution," you know, we need to, to demonize and you know see her enemy is, and righteous anger, because I, I alluded to this at the beginning with the "Love Trumps Hate" sign. We're all there, not holding hands in the spirit of. Of uh you know hugs and kisses we're there because we're angry we're angry that this man and more importantly what he represents is is getting away with what he is we're angry, and that's okay because it's healthy um comprehensive anger I have never experienced anything close to this, but if someone i loved was was murdered i'd be i'd be i'd be furious as much as I would be devastated and well, it is an incredible message they're pushing in many ways. I would, I would maybe argue there's almost a risk of, of those who are angry, those who lost um, their children, their family, their friends, who are angry. It's almost like a failing on their part if they're not just completely swept up and this is the only way forward. Because if we don't reclaim righteous anger, what's happening, and we're seeing it now, is people like... Uh, Katie Hopkins, people like Paul Joseph Watson, people like the the All Right segment on YouTube. They're uh, they've commodified anger in their own way, and it is the toxic kind of anger that they're commodifying. But that's my that's my thoughts on One Love One Love Manchester. Like I said, it was more a source of fascination just because of of that word love, which was used like a a thousand times throughout the evening. But like I said, it, it managed to carve out a true sincere version of this uh, neighbourly unified love that is so often politicised while every so often exposing its problems.
2: Stephen, your, your case study now. All right.
0: you guys want to hear about Make Poverty History?
2: I do. Why didn't Make Poverty History make Poverty History?
0: Well, um, shall I start off by giving you a little bit of the history of Make Poverty history? <laughs> yeah, if you could give um, me some history. Yeah, look, yeah, and then we'll, we'll we'll talk a little bit about uh, flaws in the, the campaign plan. Uh, so um, it all starts with the Millennium Goals, which were decided by the United Nations uh, in the year 2000. Um, and these goals were to eradicate extreme poverty and hunger to achieve universal primary education to promote gender equality and empower women to reduce child mortality improve mental health combat hiv malaria aids and other diseases to ensure environmental sustainability to develop a global partnership for development by by the year 2005 a lot of words had been said but maybe not necessarily a lot of action had been taken or a provable uh, sort of sustainable uh, goals have been put in place. Uh, so uh, in just before 2005 uh, a huge collection of uh, charities, religious groups uh, celebrities and activists all came together to form uh, this, this movement called Make Poverty History um, and Make Poverty History uh, is worldwide but I'm going to be focusing on Britain. Among uh, the Make Poverty History uh, icons was an awareness bracelet. I know these became quite fashionable in 2004. Um, and there was also a virtual version of the band available to put on websites, which was sort of a, I think, sort of a forerunner for the Facebook uh, profile picture. Mm. Uh, Solidarity, the flags that you can put over your face, the rainbows you can have coming out of your eyes. Uh, the the main thrust of uh, activity with uh, Make Poverty History also came in the form of concerts with uh, Live 8. There was also support from uh, the writer Richard Curtis. So he, on New Year's Day, wrote a special Make Poverty History episode of The Vicar of Dibley. Yes, I've yeah, seen this. Which caused a bit of a stir, a bit of unpopularity for its uh, unsubtlety. <laughs>
2: people Richard being, Curtis? People not subtle?
0: Made, well, Exactly. Uh, so he followed this up with a, a television drama called The Girl in the Cafe, uh, which stars uh, Bill Nye as sort of an aide or something in the government. And he works for the Chancellor of the Exchequer. But one day, Bill Nye of the government is in a cafe and he sees this beautiful girl called Kelly MacDonald and they fall in love. And it's through her compassion and love that she shouts at the Prime Minister for a bit and then poverty solved or something like that. I'm probably mischaracterizing that.
1: Not by much.
0: Not by much, but but not by much. Um, uh, the, the campaign also involved uh, television advertisements which were actually banned by Ofcom and for the reason that they were wholly or mainly political in nature and aimed to achieve important change. Which I think was the point of the adverts. Yeah. Quite clearly, yeah so this only lasted uh, in the year 2005. There was a little bit of a follow-up of a campaign called Enough Food for Everyone IF, which was uh, known as Make Poverty History 2 by some people, uh, under David Cameron's premiership. And uh, David Cameron uh, welcomed it, apparently. He welcomed it. Uh (laughs) (laughs) He said it was permitted to go ahead. He said, that's good, that's great. I I love it when uh, people are seen to care I love it when I appear human, and then he, he sort of scratched his neck and, and the lizard, the mask, came off just a little bit. It was focused on hunger, it wanted to end hunger, it wanted, and it focused on the root causes of uh, wealthy nations keeping aid promises, combating tax avoidance, combating land grabs, and transparency from governments and corporations in their efforts to tackle hunger, which I think is in itself quite telling of where the failures of Make Poverty History started, because there was an awful lot of talk, there was an awful lot of uh, visual stimuli, there was an awful lot of goodwill and good feelings uh, being shared around. But here we are 2018, and uh, I don't think any of the the, the millennium uh, goals are anywhere near to having been successfully fulfilled. Uh, so here are some criticisms of Make Poverty History. One of them uh, is that a lot of the money which goes into impoverished countries ends up in the hands of ruling classes anyway. So it doesn't actually help the poor people in those countries. So there's perhaps a lack of clarity of how to progress, uh, of, of, of the, how the plan should be instigated. There's a sort of a Criticism of the superficial aspect of uh, people countered the the line Make Poverty History with Make Poverty Fashionable. Like Everyone was wearing these bands, but the extent to which they engaged with or necessarily understood what the issues were is debatable.
3: Oh, yeah.
0: um, a really bad one is that Oxfam, who were very big influencers in Make Poverty History and also quite closely connected with the new Labour government, they commissioned a factory in China to make these and uh, the, the factory was not complying with uh, human rights laws. Oh my god. So the white bands, if you ever bought one of the silicon white bands, would have been made by essentially slave labour.
2: Um, Carving make-poverty history painstakingly onto yeah. every single one. Yeah, I know it's horrendous.
0: So another um, aspect of this, uh, which we can look at from a political point of view, Uh, Oxfam, who was a pivotal pivotal member in Make Poverty History, were considered by critics to be far too close to Tony Blair and Labour. And now the the government, so uh, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair, the people in power at the time, were very much in favour of Make Poverty History being seen in the country and to be seen supporting it. But the aims of Make Poverty History were to put pressure on governments to instigate change. So it doesn't make any sense, really, because it, as they are in power, any changes that that they wanted to stand up for, they could have just, you know, written down in a manifesto, which sort of makes the whole thing feel as though it's just a sort of a great big charade. Yeah, so virtue signaling.
2: The, yeah, the Tony Blair the, and David Cameron, and David the Cameron. original virtue signalers yeah. very much.
0: So... There's no denying that right down to the bands, this was an extremely white cause. From the political leaders to, to the the artists involved in the Live 8 performance, just everywhere around, it was very, very much a North Hemisphere putting all this work in for the Southern Hemisphere. Like, So Live 8 was this great big concert that they put on, uh, Pink Floyd reunited, all these sorts of things. but. Who the people who were conspicuously absent from all these proceedings were African artists, were uh, African leaders promoting their their needs. Um,
2: that would not pass today,
0: right? Well, right down to uh, the the symbol for Live Eight being a guitar, where the body of the guitar is the continent of Africa. <laughs> uh, in the Guardian, uh, th- about ten years later, uh, three prominent members of mid-property history. Reflected on the strengths and weaknesses of the movement. Uh, they generally describe the strengths as being the breadth, so the amount of people that they reached. Uh, one of them uh, responds to the idea that it was too simplistic and she said that you can't really use that as a criticism because if if it's inaccessible to as many people as we wanted to reach, you can't just tell people they're wrong for not having a knowledge that they didn't know to have yet so there needs to be a low a low bottom rung for for the ladder was the metaphor she described so a huge amount of awareness raised and a huge amount of involvement from organizations and politics the weaknesses often refer to a lack of depth in the specificity of the goals of the organization and a lot of them repeat this idea that it had a perception of being north for south so that these were rich countries, everyone in them was rich. And then there was the country of Africa, and that was where poor people lived. (laughs) Which dumbed down the message so much Mm -hmm. that it wasn't helpful. Good intentions, yeah, but perhaps a certain level of naivety. Yeah. Of uh, oversimplifying issues.
2: That, I think, if you're right with this, brings us on very nicely to the third case study. This is Pride. I'm going to talk about the, co- the corporate acquisition of Pride. We've mentioned a couple of times already the Costa Coffee Cup. So I'm going to tell you what the Independent said about this when Costa originally did this. Costa Coffee is launching limited edition Rainbow Cups across the UK to celebrate Pride Month. The new, fully recyclable Rainbow Cups are being replaced in support of GLOW, that's Gay Lesbian Out at Whitbread, a group at Costa's parent group, Whitbread, which champions equality and inclusion in the workplace. Our all-new Rainbow Cups are a fun way to celebrate pride and reflect Costa Coffee's values of equality and diversity. Jason Cotter, Costa Coffee's Managing Director, of, Managing Director of UK and Ireland, said in a statement, We are passionate about championing team members' rights to work in an inclusive, supportive environment. So there's the team member thing. Team member is obviously a term that basically means someone with almost no employment rights who works for Costa. (laughs) Um, Equality is, you know, got quite a shallow definition already. Since unveiling the cups on Twitter, which is how things are done now, Costa Coffee has been inundated with praise by supporters of the LGBT plus community for the launch, the independent article says. This is so cool, great move guys, one person wrote. Another added, I love this cup. While someone else commented, this is amazing. Yeah, again, crappy journalism, but that's not the point. I'll give another example, which is Wagamama. So they had uh, these kind of table dressings, these uh, tablecloths that they'd branded specifically in aid of pride.
0: I think at wagamama that's bits of paper.
2: Bits of paper, (laughs) yeah, yeah, that go underneath your plate. Um, Before the plate comes by, you can read messages in support of pride, such as, Closets are for clothes. Love has no labels now which is conf- which is confusing because although that sounds good rhythmically and is tied together by the theme of clothes i guess closets
0: are for clothes
2: Closets are for clothes it's two messages in one one is come out of the closet and the other is love transcends sexuality so it's a really weird it's one of those things that i, I i'm almost suspicious it's written by a machine like another says To be me without fear of prejudice or discrimination. Pride is about celebrating the consistent move forward and never backwards. You know, so vague. Um, What do you mean by forwards? What do you mean by backwards? Uh, Here's here's another couple. Proud to love freely. Love has no limits and should be accepted just like currency everywhere. So, you know, like when you use your contactless card to buy some stuff at Wagamama. Um, And here's the worst one. Here's the worst one. Pride is like Wagamama. (laughs) Lots of different people, but in the end, one big family. Wow. And yes, I did just say that. Eva, you need to do your reaction on the radio, because no one can see how... There you are. Can you vomit onto the microphone? Yeah, there you go. This is a genuine acquisition of the callers. This is a state of intent. Pride is like Wagamama. Pride is now Wagamama. We own pride. Uh...
1: Shouldn't Given that Pride came before Wagamama, shouldn't it be more like Wagamama is like Pride, not the other not way around? No, rather than Pride is just... You know what Pride reminds me of? And that's like, A restaurant! And, and that's like the, the tenth Shame. worst thing about that statement.
2: Wagamama put rainbow benches at numerous restaurant locations around Britain, and they're donating profits from steamed bun sales at said benches to local Pride charities. And I think the slogan was, get your buns on our benches. So they're donating profits to local pride charities. That's something, okay? That's more than Costa does. But the vagueness of their statements explaining their alignment with the cause still speaks to this casual acquisition, as I say. So, for example, here's what they say on their website. Why pride? Why now? At Wagamama, we pride ourselves on diversity, equality, and freedom to be you, and that's why we support pride. That's everything they say about why they support Pride. Um, they later say, but our hashtag Make It Rainbow initiative doesn't stop there. We're making sure to spread our positive Pride message even further with our Pride slogan placemats. That's what the word I was looking for, placemats. We asked our teams to share their slogans of what Pride means to them. These inspiring messages, so what you just heard was inspiring, just so, so you know, uh, are now printed on placemats, which will be inside over 50 Wagamama restaurants during the month of Pride. Okay. So now let's get on to the issues. It sounds
0: like um, they told their employees to write their advertising for them, so they didn't have to pay a copywriter.
2: Yes, that's exactly it. it and it, their
1: and their um, their employees pitched their uh, their slogans to Surrey, mm-hmm. who didn't quite take it down yeah. properly, but it was good enough. And yeah. that's
2: <laughs> yeah, Peter Tatchell, like one of the best and frankly most heroic gay rights campaigners of the last few decades. So The Independent wrote this in July 2018. Peter Tatchell has accused sponsors of this year's Pride in London of de-gaying the event and blocking tens of thousands of people from taking part. The veteran activist has said that less than a third of those who wanted to march were being allowed to join in the annual procession, describing the event as increasingly regimented, commodified and jacketed. Notting Hill Carnival, which takes over a swathe of West London each August bank holiday weekend, had avoided similar restrictions in size, growing to become Europe's biggest street party, Mr Tatchell said, while pride in the British capital is one of the smallest in the Western world. So, amid a growing movement to reclaim pride in favour of groups highlighting human rights injustices and away from corporate sponsors, Mr Tatchell told The Independent... The the parade needs commercial sponsors, sponsorship to fund it, but corporate floats now dominate the event. They've got the money, so they have huge, extravagant floats that outshine and overwhelm the LGBT plus community groups. Um, and he says many of the companies uh, don't mention LGBT. Groups They just mention Pride in particular, because Pride is the thing that helps the brand. And then the Independent says, Protests are expected at this year's march, which is said set, set, set to attract more than a million spectators, uh, with activists tweeting photos of signs decreeing rainbow capitalism. In March, the Na- National Union of Students published a Make Pride political guide, warning that the event had become less and less about queer liberation and more and more about profits. Okay, so here's what I have to say about this. Corporate sponsors of Pride are in some ways, from the looks of this, undermining the fight they claim to support and drowning out actual activists, right? You might call this marketplace Pride, I suppose. Um, Protests and street parties, I think, need to be overwhelming to political authorities if they're to make a difference, but these corporations are not obviously spending money on political pressure, they're expanding their brand. and not even necessarily cynically, but at the very least, in a way which fundamentally misunderstands how communities fight for social justice. And in doing so, I think they've weakened the resolve and the tactics of other campaigners who've sort of bought into this particular way of doing things. Uh, this, may all, this may also partly result from the pressure they've been put under themselves by individuals who, individuals who also don't fully understand political organising, people on social media maybe, Um, so it's another sort of feedback loop Uh, the only political causes that these corporations are going to ban behind are ones that are either economically neutral or almost entirely uncontroversial in some way or at least becoming uncontroversial which in many ways does water down the value of the fight in some ways i think the internal practices of corporations aren't the biggest concern it's like the external things that corporations do is that it's how they get involved in politics whether it's their relationships with politicians or political parties or their relationship with political movements and then this is one such example where they're essentially preventing it from being a force of nature which is what a protest needs to be. Question three Corporations are driven by fear of losing profits of their millennial market as much as they are by healthy capitalistic urge to exploit them. This explains why, when a campaign is deemed problematic or offensive, they apologise instantly and profusely. How has this apologising culture helped fuel paranoia around political correctness gone mad? Consider, and there are four different case studies we want to look into.
1: Yeah, this is a big question, so we've broken it down into different sub subsections.
2: The first case study we're doing is Jonathan Pye's video, Oppression Obsession. Now, Jonathan Pye, for those who don't know, we have mentioned him before in Episode 8. He's uh, a, a character played by an actor called Tom Walker. And it's a news reporter. It's the sort of standard BBC reporter voice that he puts on. He's some kind of political correspondent. And the idea is when he's off camera, he's saying what he really thinks. So the idea is to sort of break through the stranglehold of uh, of what he's been told to say. And then suddenly saying, no, this is ridiculous. We should be saying it like it is sort of thing. So it really speaks to the times. It speaks to the, dist- the widespread distrust in mainstream media. Um, but he's, he's, he goes after the left as much as he appears to go after the right. And um, his video oppression obsession uh, essentially criticizes a lot of the trends that we've been talking about. But we, I wanted to essentially dissect some of the things he says in it mm-hmm. to an extent that we can sort of kind of consider like how legitimate is this? How much is this representative? Because it's a very popular narrative mm-hmm. around political correctness at the moment. And we wanted to just dissect it and see how true it really is. So. He starts the video by saying today. We're talking about Laura Ingalls Wilder whose name has been removed from a writing award because the little house on the prairie books contain racial language and stereotypes and at that point he goes fucking hell. Why are we, why are we talking about this. So, you know, erasing evolution of culture and history is definitely bad, um, but I would say like does it not depend on how much attachment you have to this particular award Um, because this was a division of the American Library Association who took this decision, and they changed the name from the Laura Ingalls Wilder Medal to the Children's Literature Legacy Award. And they they said they did so because her legacy is complex and not universally embraced, is what they said. So there may well be some substance there, but this is possibly the wrong reaction to... To to, to things. And he goes on to say, Who is this helping? No one. Stop sanitizing and denying the past to make yourself look good. It's fucking everywhere you look. I mean, you ask the organizers of this, and they'd almost certainly say it was some kind of act of principle. They cannot be seen to be endorsing racist language. As you said, there's this paranoia about. uh, Probably because of the negative impact on their PR of a trawl of instantaneous reactions on Twitter telling them what they've done is outrageous. And when you have a Twitter-troversy, just to borrow your word ever, uh, when you have a Twitter-troversy Twitter, Twitter of that nature, you can expect your sponsors to pull out and your reputation to be pulled through the gutter. Mm-hmm. So the question is how we've gotten to that point. And Jonathan Pye is right to point to that culture.
1: What's well, kind of amusing, just as an aside, is I, I, I noticed that whenever maybe i'm just always late to the to the game but whenever i hear of a major twitter controversy of some company by the time i get to twitter to look at it all i'm seeing is people criticizing the fact that this was a twitter controversy in the first place and taking offense at the offense <laughs> so uh, i think twitter controversies are are more complicated than we realize it's just there's just as many people saying very angrily this isn't a big deal stop tweeting about it tweeting frantically this over and over again Uh, and that just keeps it trending kind of thing. and
2: then people get offended at the offence at the offence so it's just like an infinite number of layers of offence yeah 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 (laughs) exactly that's us right now we're we're that layer of offence he goes on to say we live in the most inclusive progressive diverse prosperous society ever in human history and yet we behave as if we've never had it so fucking bad this is where I really start to lose him. Um, in many ways, we are more prosperous now in the West than at many points in our history. Yeah? However, economic inequality, people's sense of powerlessness, educational practices, housing insecurity, job insecurity are just some of the things which have gotten significantly worse post-2008, and that inevitably bleeds over into discourse around identity because that's what humans tend to fall back on when life gives them lemons. Right? Not only that, but the arguments behind implementing further justice for minority groups are more sophisticated than a few corporate bodies could put across. Jonathan Pye is a satirist and an actor, so I don't expect his videos to, be, to comprehensively cover all of this, but his every word is taken dead seriously by a large number of people. Um, and I know the opinions that the character is expressing here are by no means isolated, so I do think this is worthy of dissection.
0: It is the sort of video that your uh, your hip and groovy friend, who uh, you know, ha- ha- has noticed that they're not allowed to say the n word, and uh, <laughs> believes this is an encroachment of their rights as a human being. Well, I mean, I mean, okay, so it it, it is prepackaged discussion, and it's it's sort of a, a, a well written comedy monologue.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's meant, to be, is, it's it's meant, meant to, to be angry. It's meant yeah. to rile people up. What's the purpose? What were you going to say ever?
1: I think the I think this particular rant has many merits and I think the reason it's so relevant to this episode is because he does go into uh some of the exact things we've been talking about like uh, the research you we're doing on pride he mentions the wagamama placemats he mentions the Costa yeah, yeah, coffee yeah. cups um but the the problem is is just the the breadth he's taking on um he's he's doing a lot of false equivalency and there's not a lot of nuance between, you know, he like I said, he's gone from someone's name being taken from an award, which is not the same as a company, you know, placing endorsements. He's getting at sort of virtue signaling in general, but it's quite oversimplified. Yeah,
2: and not everything is virtue signaling that he categorizes as virtue signaling. Yeah, for
1: one thing, he gets, at one point, he gets erasing the past mixed up with actually reclarifying the past because yeah. he he starts just citing random things that make him angry about oppression that's been claimed that he doesn't see and he says something about um you know if you're you feel oppressed because you're a woman nowadays because there's not enough wikipedia articles about female scientists on wikipedia i've actually taken part in one of these wikithons and i can tell you we're, <laughs> no, but we're not sitting there seething because we're oppressed all we're doing is just trying to is trying to enrich history. No one's yeah. no one's kicking and screaming about this. We're just we're actually doing what he seems to be wanting us to do. He's saying, you know, this is all empty virtue signalling. But in the case of things like that, that's people actually doing something. We're yeah, that's we're addressing. We're do, re-clarifying yeah. history. Um, and to equate that with um, taking the author's name off that award, um, which is a, I mean, even even that, I, I don't know if that's um, that's just erasure, plain and simple, this is, a, this is something that's actually quite, that could be debated, but either way, that's, that's a very different thing, I think, from, you know, grouping that with, like, the wikithons and some of the other examples of, of activism that it gives.
2: Totally. I mean, I'll quote from the Wikipedia article on their own systemic bias. Women are underrepresented on Wikipedia, making up less than 15% of active contributors. A 2011 Wikimedia Foundation survey found out that 8.5% of editors are women, and the gender gap has not been closing over time. And on average, female editors leave Wikipedia earlier than male editors. Research suggests that the gender gap has a detrimental effect on content coverage. Articles with particular interest to women tend to be shorter, even when controlling for variables that affect article length. So there is systemic bias, though. We can argue about priorities, but Wikipedia is meant to be the most objective source of knowledge on the internet. So... Yeah. isn't that worth fixing
1: yeah and I don't think anyone's claiming this is the number one problem yeah. like that we're facing right now but it is a problem that we can amend and we are amending it um there's a whiff of I'm sick of people complaining
0: really I- enjoying being in the position of um telling everyone else that they're wrong enjoying being in a sort of uh self-perceived moral high ground
1: something as well that I do take from that video that I agree with that he does seem to just be getting at constantly with the who does this help is that it's just so easy to say things Um, and this is something I've become very aware of and it's something I was trying to get out with a little bit of self-parody get at with a little bit of self-parody in the intro as well which is It's easy for me to to let people know that I'm a a caring person who's really worried about the environment because I I talk a lot about the research I've done on eating less meat and about the documentaries I've watched. And I do try, but for all I talk about it, I should be trying a lot. I should be actually doing a lot more than I do. Mm. I'm making steps. I'm, I'm talking a lot more talk than I think I have the right to do given the relatively gradual changes i've actually been making and i'm confessing that on this podcast
2: yeah it's we're all guilty of it
1: but the but with corporations um well that that's all they have to do
2: when he was talking about the wikipedia thing he was saying we're told there is prejudice wherever you look uh we used to react to prejudice and now we actively seek it out often where it doesn't effing exist um the, the thing I read out about systemic bias on Wikipedia, that's why we're told there is prejudice, because there is prejudice. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be malicious, but the response sometimes does in order to actually produce change. And I'm more tempted to agree with him about seeking out bias when it isn't necessary to do so, because I associate with that with certain exaggerated Twitter controversies, which serve very little purpose. But I think the examples he chooses, are lumping genuinely important issues into the mix, which could easily, perceived, easily be perceived as deflection away from all issues of diversity, many of which are legitimate. And that's part of this kind of... You know how the alt-right, they they have this kind of conspiratorial edge to everything that they say about the media, about... Uh, there's some people on the left that are guilty of this too. Conspiratorial thinking about the media, about... Politicians about this person, that person who's jumped on the bandwagon of this cause or that cause. And often, you know, you undermine yourself because actually it turns out those people actually just believe in those values. That you don't. Not everything is a conspiracy. When he talks about Google taking the egg out of its salad emoji to avoid offending vegans, I mean, he's somewhat jumping around there, but yes, that's absurd. Get your priorities straight, Google. Um, this is massively different from examples concerning legacies of authors and some systemic bias, though. Um,
1: But even then, did Google go, stop the presses, make this the first page story, everybody come and look at us, or did they just, for whatever reason, stupid or not, just quietly decide to make this choice that he didn't have to notice if he didn't want to?
0: (laughs) I mean, it seems like he's really seeking things out to get offended by here. Yeah, it does rather, doesn't it?
2: Good point. Um, oh, I've got to! I've got to mention this. My generation have never had to fight for much. Gay rights have come a long way in my lifetime, but we never had to fight for the vote or in a fucking war, right? I I hate this relativism argument and like it's always
1: the war as well. It's
2: always as the f- yeah, Second World War. Nothing matters except the worst things that could possibly happen. Like once again, we can argue about priorities if if you want. But there are a lot of people with legitimate grievances about these issues. And to say that we don't understand real difficulties because we never lived through a war is immensely
1: patronizing. It's not just that, but one of the reasons that everyone is so paranoid about Nazis now, you know, because he's making this big thing about my gran, you know, dealt with literal Nazis. The reason we're so paranoid now is because we just we never, ever, ever, ever want that to happen again. And yes, there's a there's a hypersensitivity where we're actually being quite regressive about it and maybe calling people use throwing about words like supremacist and Nazi and neo-Nazi in a way that is I I do think detrimental. Hmm. But it comes from a place of genuine fear that we can't ever let this get out of control because as anyone will tell you, uh, the rise of Nazism did not happen overnight. It was it was a trickle down thing that all of a sudden yeah. was out of control and we're just hyper aware of all the symptoms. Maybe a little too aware if it's Possible to be too aware of such a thing. And
0: it's also an accusation that comes from literally everyone on the internet. Like whether they, whatever niche group they identify as belonging to, calling someone else a Nazi um, is done by, and I, I hate using these terms, the right and the left. Yeah. You know, everyone does it. So, so to to just yeah to 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 attribute it to just one side is is just incorrect. Yeah.
1: I think what people need to realise as well is that everyone's a little bit of a fascist. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that sounds like a very very controversial statement to make, but we all kind of want... We all believe in our own viewpoint. Anger stems from a place of you not being able to control how other people feel and how other people think. And when you get power to back up that anger and enough people who feel the same way, that's when it gets dangerous. But we have to accept that there's actually a little bit of fascism that runs through every ideology and you know what that's okay as long as it's kept in tow because that's just human nature i'm no fan of george and peterson but i do agree with what he says about this which is stop kidding yourself that you have to realize you are the nazi if you were in germany at that time it's very unlikely you would have been in opposition this is all in us it's important to recognize it
2: there's a real awareness of how much there is to lose that's what I would say in our society at the moment. Yes. Stop fucking demonstrating how worthy you are. You know, he talks about the, the, comparing the work of the suffragettes to modern struggles. Like, interestingly, what I think he's getting backwards at times is awareness of history versus lack of awareness of history. Mm-hmm. Many people make social justice their lives because of just how aware they are of what can be taken away, because they live and breathe the history. Rather than being blissfully unaware of it, as he seems to think many of them are. And then he goes on about the Costa Coffee Cup. Um,
1: Which was a good point.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you decide to pick up a rainbow Costa Coffee Cup, you may well just be signalling virtue. Um, But more likely you're thinking, isn't it wonderful that this is now mainstream?
1: You just make it sound as if when you walk into Costa, they literally went, Would you like the, the rainbow coffee cup or would you like the one with swastikas all over it? You know, I, I think they just gave you it whether you wanted it or not.
0: No, I am. Um, I don't see the problem with with having a, a rainbow colored Costa coffee. Me cup. neither. Like, Me um, neither. Something that the BBC has come across quite a bit recently. So there was a. It, it's representations of the, the Roman army, right? So historian Mary Beard writes a lot and produces programming on Rome and the Roman Empire and regularly these days they feature uh, black actors as Roman centurions and always the first out of the gate whenever this happens is, is uh, alt-right or at the very least anti-progressives uh, saying that this is a great big conspiracy to put them down that uh, to, to put black people in there is false, it's unhistorical um, horrendous Twitter bullying has happened to Mary Beard mm-hmm. you know in, in such a way as only happens to women <laughs> yeah. I'll just point that out. Actually it's unhistorical not to put them in because the Roman Empire expanded into many territories in Africa and historians currently say well there's no reason to believe that there wouldn't have been African soldiers in the roman army so what they don't recognize is that our previous narrative our previous understanding of history was also unnatural mm. these are both created by people and the fact that it's being revised now is not unnatural and it's not a political statement it's just the fact that it contrasts the uh, the, the Penguin picture book that they had when they were a child, or their asterisks and Obelix books, a Costa coffee cup can just be a Costa coffee cup, whether there's rainbows on it or not.
2: Exactly. It's just a colour at the end of the day, for God's yes.
0: sake. So, once again, he is looking for reasons to be offended. <laughs> um, if he is making the argument that people are going out of their way to perform certain virtues I
2: think it would be far more natural for him to just pick up his coffee in the morning and drink it mm-hmm. this is what identity politics does to you it turns your fucking head into blancmange you can't see how the world how it really is, you see oppression where there is none and I'm not sure how we're actually defining identity politics here, I mean some are definitely obsessed with the lens but I don't know if that's the natural conclusion of identity politics
0: I, I listened to an interview with him with Krishnan uh, Murthy, I've
2: heard the same one, yeah.
0: And he talks a lot about freedom of speech and how we need to open up discussions. But this big rant is doing the exact same thing to say, you're not allowed to talk about social justice issues as certain social justice warriors do against conservative ideas. I mean, nobody's freedom of speech has been taken away. Everyone in these countries are allowed to say whatever they want. Yeah. And, and what most people are choosing to say with their voice is you're trying to stop my voice and then they get they, you know they, they say it every day on Twitter uh, not recognizing that that's them exercising their freedom of speech um,
1: And then if they call someone uh, a, a- on twitter yeah. so we're going to bleep that um, and twitter suspends their their account for 48 hours under the jurisdiction of mm. that's abusive la that's targeted abusive language yeah. which is pretty standard yeah. to not allow on your your website yeah um, that's then seen as C see Twitter's in on it as well.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the internet's yep. an extension of speech and there's loads and loads and loads of places on it where you can express your opinion. If one website blocks you, yeah. then you ha- your freedom of speech has not been fucking taken away.
0: No, you can get on a soapbox tomorrow and shout from, uh, you know, the-
2: Nine till five. Nine yeah. till five, yeah.
1: And if the police ask you to move, from I don't know George's Square or wherever, and they ask you you, to sh- you can you can do it in your yeah. garden. You do then. it in your garden,
0: yeah, it's fine. That's your property. Um, and if the neighbors ask you to stop shouting <laughs> because their children are trying to sleep, well, then that's oppression. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but we had to go through a lot of steps to get to your right to freedom <laughs> of speech being taken away. There, so my point is, freedom of speech works both ways. Yeah, and both sides pick and choose what they want to see. That's human nature. But get a get a grip. If your biggest problem is Costa Coffee offering you a rainbow cup, I think it's quite clear that you don't understand oppression.
2: I think the one with the oppression obsession is Jonathan Pye. If Dumbledore being openly gay is the height of the gay community's oppression, then the war war has already been won. Chill out, it's all fucking good, mate.
1: Yes, there are people who were very upset about that, mm. but that doesn't mean there isn't far more people who are very upset and yeah. far more concerned about the things you're talking about, you know.
0: And his line of thinking consistently shuts down. Um, we can
1: walk and chew gum at the same time, as Dumbledore yeah, exactly. said.
0: So, so I mean, I, I, I guess it is pretty established that I agree with him on the Dumbledore front. Because I've made fun of people who, yeah. I like, think it's numerous times. Like,
2: it's yeah. stupid as hell. But like, you don't think you don't think every community in the country is now sufficiently accepting that gay couples can hold hands in public without fear of being beaten because some people in London and New York are sad about Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. You've made that distinction. He hasn't. Yeah. <laughs> and you can,
0: yes, it, this is parody and it's exaggerated, but...
2: But it speaks to people. It speaks to yeah. people big time at the moment. He finishes the video by saying, Most normal people just want to watch their Star Wars films, drink their skinny latte, eat their noodles and read their novels written by people with different sets of values to us, and of course speak out against oppression and injustice, but where it actually exists. There's a lot of it in this country, but you won't find it in the salad emoji on Google or a novel written a hundred years ago. Well, social media is where people go to express irrational opinions or validation, sometimes. Corporations now value such reactions too much. But I think social media is a gigantic fog which shields those posts and groups which demonstrate how much we do care about what's happening to gay people in Chechnya or to women in Syria and amplify the voices of anti-intellectual nutjobs with lots of time on their hands. I think the best thing to do to counter this ridiculous culture war rhetoric, and that's what this is, its culture war rhetoric, is to spend your time drawing attention to such cases that genuinely matter maybe you're not if you're a satirist okay and ignore twitter's loudest and most insecure users because that's what the only thing that's going to make this issue go away
1: i think we all can see that this is a problem when you look at things like how uni- universities are sanitizing their content and the the very uh, contentious issue of no platforming i'm perfectly willing to have a discussion about that, but this is this is uh, shouting in so many directions at once and kind of mainly at corporations but somehow blaming just everyday people, the everyday left for the actions of corporations, um, that it's, uh, it's just very messy and all over the place.
2: Second case study for this question then. Uh, campaigns that have piggybacked on a social justice issue and have it horribly
1: backfire. Before I go into the specific examples, um, I've got um, I found an article on PG Media um, that explains uh, part uh, some of the logic behind why um, companies market in a certain way and why this is such a trend now. Um, so I'm just reading out here. Millennials want to buy products from brands that uphold their own ideal self-image, and this often means aligning oneself with issues and causes that matter to them. This goes from proudly posting a selfie while wearing Patagonia outerwear to carrying the New Yorker that are taking over nyc streets and subway platforms millennials want people to see them and immediately know what they care about now that's a quotation from within the, that the author was using from another study the author themselves then said uh <laughs> the vacuousness of the millennial generation has no limits have they not figured out yet that none of us want to know about their latest cause everyone cares about things you aren't special Uh, You're hilariously clueless. This is what participation trophies got us. An entire generation of people who think buying overpriced footwear is charity work. It's embarrassing. But keep in mind, these are the same people who eat Tide Pods for clicks on YouTube. Changing marketing strategy to cater to them might not be the best practice. Uh, we kind of covered a lot of what's wrong with that statement, and yeah, talking yeah. about Jonathan Pye, so we'll just we'll just let it sit. But what what was new there is that Jonathan Pye never got stuck into millennials specifically. This guy's no. this guy's bringing a whole new uh, divisive angle to the cause. Um, but quite interestingly. Um, I've got something here. Uh, A 2013 study by researchers at the University of California at Riverside and the London School of Economics found that do-gooder CEOs were actually more likely to engage in irresponsible actions. Having established a superior moral image through CSR policies, that's corporate social responsibility, these executives tended to become lax in their managerial vigilance, either because they are distracted by CSR or it is necessarily at odds with an executive's fiduciary responsibility to to deliver returns for shareholders. And there's an example of Chipotle, which is um, a Mexican fast food chain in America. I don't know if it's made it to Britain. Yeah, I think there's a
0: couple of branches. Yeah.
1: So the company's entire marketing strategy rested upon the environmentally righteous claim that they use safer and higher quality organic and local ingredients. When people started getting food poisoning because of Chipotle's inadequate food safety procedures, though, all that... CSR Goodwill was flushed down the drain. Sales collapsed and have yet to recover. In the most recent quarter, same-store sales slid 4.8%. The company stock price dropped uh, 15% in the last 12 months. Chipotle talked a big game about his commitment to sustainable agriculture, but seemingly lost sight of quality control, uh, which is what truly drives sales. Food poisoning has a way of dampening customer enthusiasm for left-wing social causes. Um, that's, just, uh, that's just maybe a slightly long-winded example of just make sure you know what you're fucking doing, Mm. before you you print the posters. We only sell organic. Put as much effort into, you know. Isn't it
0: crazy that environmental, uh, like, caring about the planet we live on is considered left-wing, wishy-washy nonsense? I know. (laughs)
1: Oh my god. I don't even get- How am I
0: supposed to play
2: golf if I've got all these wind turbines in my view? Yeah, that's now now sticking up for the little guy,
1: that is. Um, Oh, another one that um, tanked was Target, which is a department store, Um, were eager to burnish their progressive credentials about gender identity issues. Lurching headlong into the world of CSR, uh, they imposed radical new bathroom policy on customers, uh, which had a widespread backlash, especially by the worried parents of small children. Uh, and there was a nationwide boycott by more than 1.4 million shoppers. Yikes. So it doesn't actually give the specifics of the radical new bathroom policy. I'm going to assume they, they took the genders off the doors or something like that. <laughs> um, which is ill-advised with, without doing your market research or yeah. just practicality. Because the thing is, the the issue with like gender-neutral bathrooms, it is an ongoing discussion. It has, you know, as with many issues now, it's got two sides that are quite uh, extreme, mm-hmm. uh, that are drowning out the cons- uh, legitimate concerns yeah. and you know legitimate voices of people who are kind of in the middle on it and just want to have a conversation. Um, but I, I I would I consider that disrespectful what Target did in taking a debate that is still ongoing and <laughs> ripping the just saying. See, <laughs> it's easy. No, it's not.
2: Corporate yeah. social responsibility is probably what's got us where we are. In the way that it manifests with businesses that might want to conceal unethical practices by appearing ethical on the surface. That's how they distract. That's how they win over a large section of perhaps the millennial market in some ways who, who just see many aspects of the world that we're in as being quite intrinsically unethical and unfair.
1: I think the epitome of this, which had a backlash from millennials themselves, was that dreadful Pepsi advert. There's some kind of protest going on and you see a lot of a very a lot of young people, um, of all different races, genders, orientations, um, and they're carrying plaques that you know have deliberately vague uh, proclamations of of justice and the future and love and kindness so they could be protesting anything you don't know what the nature of the protest is but uh some for some reason Kendall Jenner is there she's doing a modeling shoot but she's distracted by watching all these protesters go marching by and there's this awful like inspirational pop song going on in the background so she leaves her modeling shoot and she joins and then uh, because it's a protest there's police um monitoring it and she has a can of pepsi and she takes it up to one of the police officers and she hands him a can of pepsi and he opens it and i think everyone cheers it's been a while since i watched it um
2: <laughs> that sounds hilarious <laughs> And the placards, some of them read, join the conversation. Yes, so yeah. It's, yeah,
1: it's things like that. Um, but it was, it was criticised for quite a lot of interesting reasons, away from the obvious, how can you be this shameless and vacuous? And, you know, what even is this? What you say, what, did, what are you saying about Pepsi? <laughs> um, uh, is that I heard a complaint that it seemed to be implying that, um, say, for instance, certain political movements like Black Lives Matter need to be more kind to police officers like show more respect to police mm-hmm. officers and everyone will be friends or something and that that takes people off and i don't think that's what pepsi was trying to say again it's that assumption this is simple we've ticked all these boxes of things that millennials like right mm-hmm. and and they're just going to soak it up no people read things if, if you're going to take on very complicated issues people are going to read things into it that you you have you haven't the intelligence to even think about in advance
2: so there again you get corporations that might jump on the bandwagon of social justice issues and then people go well because this corporation indulges in unethical practices that must mean the social issue, social justice issues that they're jumping onto are also unethical yeah
1: or it's vacuous or hollow or, or
2: vacuous or hollow it's the most simple and stupid conspiratorial thinking yeah third one The eagerness of various corporations that are in many ways ethically bankrupt and their eagerness to demonstrate zero tolerance. Firing of James Gunn, Google's firing of James DeMore, etc. Do you want to tell us, tell our audience about the James Gunn debacle?
3: Um,
0: James Gunn is a film director and uh, ex-provocateur. He's created sort of very horrific, uh, controversial films like Tromeo and Juliet or Super, uh, the horror film Slither. Uh, He, about ten years ago, this is my understanding of it, he went to a Hollywood event uh, and a convicted or an accused paedophile had been invited to this event and so, in response to seeing that this individual had been forgiven by the system, he went to Twitter and he made strange, exaggerated posts saying that he was a paedophile. He, w- he was joking about being a paedophile and about this being acceptable um, as a sort of... He's not a paedophile. He was protesting a paedophile being accepted by Hollywood after the accusation happened and he did this in a very provocative manner. About seven years later uh, he was hired by Disney and to write and direct the film Guardians of the Galaxy. He has currently written and he signed a contract to direct the third Guardians of the Galaxy film but he is an outspoken uh, Individual against the Donald Trump administration, and then a right wing talk show host and conspiracy theorist dug up these old tweets that James Gunn wrote, made a big deal out of them, treated comments made in tasteless jest as admissions of guilt, and in a post Me Too, zero tolerance Hollywood. James Gunn was fired for protesting a paedophile being accepted into the Hollywood establishment.
2: And so Disney, unknowing to them, made a major concession to these alt-right right. fanatics yeah. and to Trumpi- Trumpi- Trumpism in the process of trying to appear non-Trumpian. Yes. It's just so backwards.
0: Yes. Uh, Well, the alt-right regularly use what appears to be quite hypocritical and self-contradictory tactics to silence opposition, all in the name of free speech, of course. Mm -hmm. Defending a sexual deviant like Trump by accusing someone of being a sexual deviant. Who isn't one. Who isn't one. Uh, And and James Gunn was actually very... uh, open and vocal in support of Me Too and Zero Tolerance Against. Uh...
2: What's astonishing is that people then come along and say that this is the left that's done this. That Disney is somehow yeah. a left-wing entity that has silenced James Gunn. <laughs> who,
3: yeah.
2: who, is and who is left-wing in the Who is left-wing in the first yeah. place.
1: Yeah. Because now what we've got is, in the examples I was reading out before, this was um, Different companies who'd accidentally shot themselves in the face mm-hmm. with with a riding on social justice issues that they did not have the intelligence to handle. Uh, what Disney has now managed to do is actually damage the movement itself. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's catastrophic what they've what they've done to the discourse.
0: Yes, and it sets an astounding precedence.
1: I put in James Damore as well of Google, which I think is a far more fraught. Case. I still think Google handled it very clumsily. If you don't know, there's this guy called James Damore, and he wrote um, a very clumsily worded memo, or was it a mission statement. Um, although he made it sound, he wrote it in this really pseudo uh, academic prose, mm-hmm. um, expressing concern about Google's drive towards meeting quotas, uh, equality in the workplace, and diversity, particularly regarding um, women. And he presented some I'm using the word clumsily worded research about women being more prone to anxiety, say and that um, and other and they're more emotional and it was getting at this tired old argument of there's 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 reasons why women don't make the same as men, you know? It's just it's nature that they don't ask for the same things and they they don't demand it the same way.
0: Hate Wikipedia.
1: No, this was um it was decided that his mission statement was promoting negative stereotypes around women, which I agree with, uh and he was fired as a consequence, which I disagree with. I think you could tear up the mission statement quietly um without but I think firing him was was personally too extreme. He has the right to to express these concerns, but it would have been far more useful to you know re-educate him or mm-hmm. Or or even just accept, God forbid, there's a dissenting voice. And I say this as someone who, you know, I can't be arsed with this kind of thinking. I completely disagree with James Daymore. But, you know, God forbid, stop, draw- God say, don't stop drawing attention You know, to idiotic opinions like that. You know, it culminated in one very problematic study when there's been lots of other studies, you know, refuting a whole bunch yeah. of stuff that he said. But... Um, But the point was, Google didn't fire James Damore because they care about women. They don't run diversity quotas because they care about women or people of colour necessarily that way. They do it because they care about their image as being one that cares about women and people of colour. And, of course, what's happened is he's become a martyr for the the right, or the alt-right, or whatever. The freedom of speech. The
2: alt-light as well. Yeah. The alt-light are the freedom of speech people, really. The alt-right are more kind of race-war-oriented, don't really care about freedom of speech as much, according to the old lights. but I don't know how much to believe that.
1: So much like with Disney, it was an action that was very Hmm. poorly judged.
2: So how much should we care? How much should we care about Google's internal CSR-related practices? I don't. Yeah, see, this is my opinion.
1: But I do care about when I'm in the workplace. Mm -hmm. I think there is a valid worry in, you know this could be me being unfairly fired. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think it's... like Another example was the Netflix executive who was fired for saying the N-word repeatedly, but apparently he said the N-word at a meeting about insensitive language. And the thing is, the statement on why he was fired is so vague. I I don't even know... I just wish they'd let us know what actually happened, because...
0: I heard he was pitching uh, a TV series about the Niger Delta but he mispronounced it.
2: Stephen, that was very hateful the way you said Nigel.
0: I said Nigel.
2: Oh, right. You're racist. Oh, shit, I'm the racist. You heard- Can you fire- can, can I have my P45 now, please?
1: <laughs> you're fired from spectacles. Oh. You may take your case to YouTube where the alt-right will support you.
0: Please, uh, you're not fired as editor.
2: I'm going to go join UKIP. <laughs>
1: But anyway, yeah, Mm. okay, now if that's true, then for God's sake...
2: Oh, sorry, I made that up.
1: Oh, okay, right. Yeah, that that was me Here's here's the thing, though. I believed it, because it could be that these days. It really could be. But it could be something as ridiculous as that. It could be that he he was screaming the words at people and pointing at them. We don't know. Um, But his... (laughs) His conciliatory um, acceptance of his resignation I found really... Really funny, and I found Netflix's statement where they were like, "He's an invaluable member of the team. Um, reason upon reason why this is a ridiculous business decision. But unfortunately, he's completely wrong for this company and does not align with her values in any way." And he was like, "I have absolutely loved my time at Netflix. I'll never forget it. I'm so grateful for the experience, and I'm I can only apologize that I am just wrong, wrong as a person, wrongly why <laughs> <one." laughs> It's <was> just ridiculous." <laughs> So it's farcical.
2: Fourth one is the perceived silencing of dissenting voices, re-diversity, quotas and politically correct language.
1: Um, I'm personally against quotas in 90% of the circumstances. And I think this is... This is we're wading now into the criticisms of the, sure. the left, if you will. Sure, Actually, before it. I do that, I, I had something... So we've covered corp, um, companies who have punched themselves in the face... Uh, with social justice. We've covered companies who have actively uh, caused damage to the social justice movement. Um, I've got a particularly sinister example here um, from Facebook, when they now, they now allow you to choose your own gender. Mm-hmm. Now, that itself is not what I'm taking umbrage with. Um, how I feel about that is irrelevant. Um, but it's the language with which this step was um, was expressed in the press release. So I've just got it here. By challenging the gender binary, Facebook will finally allow thousands of people to describe themselves as they are now, and it will allow future generations of kids to become truly comfortable in their own skin. Um, I'm really, really freaked out by how that's worded. Um, I'm freaked out by the word, finally. Facebook will finally allow, because we were all waiting on Facebook to do it, up until this moment. Mm. people have not been allowed to describe themselves as they are up until until that moment where Facebook broke that barrier. And then the part about it will allow a future generation of kids to become truly comfortable. Um, I mean, that's just so sinister. The implication screams there that your worth is intrinsic to self-validation because all Facebook is is a massaging of your need for self-validation. You need to say, I went on holiday to Tunisia and get that like, um, t- you know, y- I mean, people share, they don't even share pictures of their holiday, they share the fucking directions that they took yeah. to their holiday. Look at the flight. <laughs> yeah, you need people to to know that you had such a day today. day wrestled the kids into the car, you're having, you know, your glass of Chardonnay, you know, I, I deserve this, you know, you, you need... The people to to validate you are a hardworking mum, and yes, yes, girl, you drink that chardonnay. Don't you feel guilty? We're with you, you know. Um, so it's now it's going as far as to talk about something as as fraught as gender identity. The mental, it's um, you know, no secret that the mental health of people that struggle with gender identity tends to be very poor for a variety of reasons, and a very key reason would be that you're told you need approval from people when what you need to do is empower people to be who they who they are and themselves. Facebook has very craftily um, completely pushed the agenda of you need approval. You need Facebook's approval. Facebook approves you. Now you can identify how you like and you can watch other people approve this. Anyway, that's, well, that was my take on that. Here's
2: an interesting point. Um, if I don't say so myself. What you said there about Facebook saying finally like finally it is okay to do this the implication there is historically their freedom of speech those people who identify differently in terms of gender from the rest of us their freedom of speech has been mm-hmm. at threat historically and now it's being enabled um i saw a debate between jordan peterson and stephen fryer on one end and two people whose names i can't remember on the other And the debate was about political correctness and what you call, I think the statement was, what you call political correctness, I call social justice, bro. And it was like, for and against, and against was Jordan Peterson and Stephen Fry. And what was so interesting about the debate was that both sides, through very different forms of language, essentially were saying the same thing, which was, I feel shut down by you. I feel like I can't express myself properly because of things that you guys believe in. They were both saying that. It speaks to maybe a slight feedback loop here, Mm -hmm. that we're all justifying each other's oppression and need for validation and all that stuff, and we're getting obsessed with the rhetoric online. We're sort of confusing rhetoric on the internet for rhetoric in day-to-day life. And maybe we need to separate those things out a bit more.
1: We have an online identity. I mean, is it is it just is it just me? No. When no, I you're when right. I'm talking to someone or or reading someone's status, I I have this different image of them. It's like computer Stephen or even computer Tom. Yeah. Does no, totally, totally.
2: We are outsourcing our identity. We're sort of almost sacrificing the bits of ourselves we don't like very much. Yeah. At least some of us are. Some people sort of own that, you know. But everything that we say to each other is now moving into another sphere, and we're not quite liking what it's demonstrating about ourselves in all sorts of different ways.
1: We're having some of the most complicated and fraught discussions about things like politics, religion, morality, whatever, just with words. And what I mean by that is, I mean that might sound silly, like of course we're doing it with words, but actually you need a lot more than words. You need body language and expressions, Uh, you need to watch people's reactions as you engage them, you need tone, you need context, you need everything. Um, and when you do it just with words, all you have is the words, which people can reject without question. They can take offense at for reasons you don't understand. They can just re- even just reading it in the wrong tone, even if they agree with you, is still dangerous. And even if you, you think a bit like YouTube videos, Okay, yes, you're watching someone speak then, so you've got the body language you've got, but you don't get to talk back the same way. You can only reply in comments or with a video yourself, maybe. So we, can, you, we can't be, we can't talk the same way you do, quote, in real life as you do online. We're not, we're not good at being machines yet.
2: No, we're trying to work it out and we're a bit stressed by it. It's a stage of human evolution.
1: Can we think of any cases we've agreed with? I mean, I mentioned James, or disagreed with, rather. Do you know what I mean? Like, we've actually sympathised with paranoia. Can I say two words? Nazi pug.
2: Oh, yeah, 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 totally. That was an active stranglehold on freedom of speech. It's really sad. It's really sad to say that we agree with that case when the most outspoken proponents of him not being fined for what he said yeah. were tommy robinson and katie hopkins because
1: i was with jonathan Pye on that one where were we it doesn't matter what this guy's politics where we should have been defending him yeah here's, here's, here's a question for you just in case you're, you're not aware of this um there was a man who made um a, he called himself a shit poster which basically means he just gets off on being a a lovable troll online. A tool. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he made this video um, and uh, posted on YouTube in which he taught his girlfriend's pug to do a Nazi salute by lifting his paw while he said the words gas the Jews, gas the Jews, gas the Jews. And it's been pointed out by Jonathan Pye that he's actually making fun of Nazis. It's ridiculous, the image of this pug. just mind- It's actually making fun of in a way of how mindless they were, just mindlessly lifting its paw in response to this word, because that's what it'd been trained to do. It was actually a kind of wicked piece of satire when you think about it. Or it was just a tasteless joke. You, d- you don't have to agree with me on the satire bit if you don't want, but it was a joke. Right? Nothing
2: about it seemed to be endorsing anti-Semitism of any kind to no.
1: me. Unsafe and uncomfortable, I think, have been very conflated as well. Mm. Like I think, I I saw uh, this really soul destroying protest going on at some insane liberal arts college in America, and it was like students who'd locked like a, st- a professor in a room or something, or not letting him do his job because he'd refused to celebrate Anti White Day or something like that. Something like that. Um, okay, why well, it wasn't called Anti White Day, but
2: if it was whites don't come into the campus or something was, like that.
1: There was just one point where. Uh, the leader of this debacle, Lord of the Flies, Lordess of the Flies in this case, said um, your freedom of speech is not more important than my safety or my comfort. And I went, okay, well, I agree with one th- one part of that sentence, but the comfort part, no. Th- that's- <laughs> <laughs> what is comfort? There was another thing that I took major umbrage with recently um, to do with, you mentioned quotas in that question. Um, in which uh, an author I really admire, Lionel Shriver, she now writes for The Spectator. Um, but other than that, she's, she's really lovely, she's really great. <laughs> so Penguin uh, Publishing recently, I think it was Penguin or maybe it was Random House, but they recently released a programme in which they're seeking to uh, their workplace, um, which includes the authors they represent, will reflect the general population in terms of diversity statistics, right? So uh, Lionel Shriver wrote, in a very shriver fashion, a very uh, biting response to this. And she used, she made a joke, which was very ill-advised of her. She made a a joke in the middle of it in which she said, so you can guarantee if you are a transgender, pansexual, disabled uh, Caribbean, from a working class background or who grew up in a in a poor house, you're guaranteed to be published whether or not your stuff's any good. Now, I don't find that a particularly funny joke, I also don't find it a very offensive joke. I get what she's getting at, and she's obviously exaggerating. Uh but this of course this was the this was the out of context thing that was grabbed and the narrative became Lionel Shriver is a privileged white woman who hates black people and she doesn't want to ever see them published. And this sentence is proof that she thinks no black person ever has written anything good. What was actually really concerning to me is that um, the beneficiaries of a a certain diversity promoting scheme, which Lionel Shriver is actually very much in favour of, she says she's very in favour of initiatives, yes. Mm -hmm. It's quotas she has an issue with. And she made some really good observations, like... (laughs) <laughs> one of the th- one of the first things they'd have to do is fire a lot of women from their editing team because women are overrepresented in the editing department. Yeah. Um, if they want to reflect the the general population, I'm in favour when you're doing a panel. I think it's reasonable to have a quota for certain types of panels. For instance, I think like if you're doing a panel on abortion, having four men there yeah. is a terrible idea. But in the workplace, I think it's I think it's quite yeah, dangerous and just another chance for companies to to virtue signal because. Yeah. The only purpose of quotas is so they can go, see, we're a caring company. We have more women or more people of color or more than, than these companies. That's, that's yes. the only purpose of it.
0: A few years ago, Marlon James, who's this Caribbean, I think he's Jamaican uh, author, uh, he, he won a, like a really big prize. And then in his statement, he said something on the lines of, the publishing industry uh, is completely dominated by white women. And the SJWs uh, didn't know what to make of this. Do they support the black guy or do they support the women? There is a black and there is a girl. Which one is more right? I think eventually, they, I think eventually they, they they came down against Marlon James. But if if he, as a black man from this impoverished country, feels uncomfortable in his work environment then maybe there is something to be said for uh, you know a bit of diversity especially like in the arts. Uh, Dan Harmon does a podcast with one of the other Rick and Morty writers called Jessica Gao, and it's about 29 episodes on positive discrimination from the point of view of writers but she says a lot of very interesting things about being in the writers room and being either the only woman, or being the only Chinese person, or being the only minority, Um, and how it makes you a worse writer to be the only one, because you have to be the ambassador for an entire Mm -hmm. gender. She says that you're constantly second-guessing yourself, and so, to a certain level, um, as much diversity as possible in a writer's room would be good for art. In some studios, uh, writers' rooms are given like a special sort of grant to have the minority space filled, but the minority space is a staff writer, not a head writer, so it prevents them from being promoted. I mean, it's a complex, thorny issue, which I don't think any of us are uh, really, really able to. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, with this. Uh, Shriver issue, mm-hmm. it was, and this is her phrase and it's a marvellous phrase, it was the malicious misinterpretation, because I'm on board with everything you're saying, she's on board with everything you're saying, it was quotas, as it was the means mm. to which they were achieving yes. this goal, because like like I said, she was in favour of diversity initiatives. The, the love and hate binary for a small, tiny but very loud part of the left, things are are automatically just good or bad, the quotas are not an end in themselves. But I do agree, there needs to be more diversity. Mm.
0: Yes, you're right. It's not a solution, but as a means to an end, I think it, it, you need you need artificial things in place yes. to, to overcome uh, the unconscious mm-hmm. biases.
1: I'll even give way to quotas of some description. It's just the one that Random House set out were so specific and, like I yeah. said, so... Ill thought out that they would have to actually fire a lot of their staff to- <laughs> yeah I mean
0: yeah, so- in, 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 in that in that specific case it, it does uh, sort of uh, come back to what we were saying about uh, the 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 corporate mentality um being about virtue signaling mm-hmm. in ninety nine cases I have a hundred
2: so the final question how can we deprivatize? social justice causes? I wrote that question,
1: I was I was happy with my turn of phrase. Oh. I felt like I was all taking a moment to appreciate it.
2: Yeah, uh, Eva wrote these questions, all of them, they're very good. I mean, I think Thank social... you,
1: white, straight male.
2: It's okay, white, straight female.
1: <laughs> I yeah. still get one for
2: female. Oh. <laughs> How do we deprivatize social justice causes? Um, well, you take them into your own hands, um, you recognize the nuance involved in them, and you don't, and you make sure that you do it sort of hand in hand with economic justice. So, for example, with regards to feminism, you need to think about issues within, uh, not just in the workplace, but in the domestic space, and uh, how economics adversely affects women in all sorts of circumstances. Uh, Marketplace feminism neglects a lot of elements of Mm -hmm. day-to-day feminism. I think this culture war that we're seeing where you're getting people on one side or the other going on the BBC to debate these issues and all sorts of other things that are more nuanced like housing or infrastructure just get silenced because they're not of interest. Um, Or it's very clear where we want to go next with them, like build more social housing, who's going to say otherwise. Uh, But we're not talking about that, we're talking about this bullshit. because. I think in the background of this culture war. This culture war wouldn't be happening if economic war had not been waged on 90% of the world's population over the last 10 years. It's simple as that in some ways. Um, By neglecting economics, there's some criticism of the, let's call them, the progressive liberal left. Some of the criticism laid at their feet has been, um, you've tried to change culture before changing society. And to some extent I see what people mean by that. You can't, you know, you can call for love, like, which is the theme of this episode. You can call for love over hate, but you can't expect people to just be loving when they've been deeply oppressed by others or by a system. You can't just expect it of people naturally. You have to give people the means to be loving, if that's what we're aiming for.
0: Um, so you, you remember the South Park episode where Randy says the N-word on a countdown? vaguely. Yeah, so so, all the way throughout the episode, Tolkien's really angry with Stan, and Stan keeps going, I get it, okay, I understand why you're angry. It's because of this and this and this and this, and he's like white-splaining uh, Tolkien's feelings to him. And then the conclusion of the episode is just, Stan goes, I don't get it. I, I, I have no idea how you feel in this situation. That, and then Tolkien's like, yeah, you get it, Stan. I don't get it. Yeah, you get it. So I think the fundamental problem with Jonathan Pye's video is that he is talking about things that well why why would he get that why would he understand why um, living every single day in a body that you believe is different from your soul is uh, you know constantly emotionally degrading in a way that living through a war might be quite bad too. It's like well if if he is if he is the, the this look, he was unemployed for a long time apparently but that doesn't mean he isn't privileged. That doesn't mean he that hasn't always had a sense of identity. Yeah, when when he says we've never lived in such an affluent progressive time, yeah, it's affluent for him, it's progressive for him. <laughs> it all works for him. But he he can't just say, so, shut up, gays. Shut up about your Dumbledore, because... <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, he said... Well,
0: where where does he get off doing that? He's... He just needs to say, I don't get it, but I can
2: listen to you, and I can try to empathise. Well, precisely. So one of the things he says in the video is, Peter Tatchell campaigning in Russia against their disgusting gay rights record. I'm with you every step of the fucking way. And I just thought, are you, though, Jonathan... Because you talked a lot about less words, more action, and and more debate. The left needs to debate properly now. There's not a single debate on his YouTube channel. If this is honestly what you care about, then why are you not being the example of how to do it? You're just essentially ranting into the void. Yeah, so, so
0: I mean, when, when you do catch up with this episode, uh, sir... Uh, that's that's where your career goes next. It, it stops being uh, a sort of a clickbaity uh, mm. viral video career and it starts becoming one that's more about what what you claim to be your big cause, which is freedom of speech and discussion. So start start discussing. Yeah. And that doesn't mean getting your point across to someone else. That also means listening.
2: And also, let's not forget, he's running a business. Of and, course, it's and his livelihood. As a as a business owner, he is choosing a side in the culture war that is going to accumulate sufficient attention, just the same as all the fucking corporations like Costa and Wagamama that he criticises. The hypocrisy of these f- effing freedom of speech people, is just, it's so easily unravelled. Mm-hmm.
0: Homework, everybody. Seriously, go and watch ContraPoints' video about Jordan Peterson. She keeps saying, don't think we don't see whose freedom of speech
2: you keep defending. Yeah. How do we deprivatise social justice, Eva?
1: Um, well, my, I would always advocate that perhaps one of the problems with, I'm sorry for using this expression, the left, although I think it's one of our more innocent problems, is we might try and bite off more than we can chew all at once or be so overwhelmed that we you know, try to move a mountain, I would say you can take little steps in your life just to be more virtuous in the true sense, if you do care about the stuff we've talked about this episode, and one of them would be stop buying from corporations that you know um, are economically immoral. If you're sort of middle of the road, true freedom of speech, sensible freedom of speech advocate just don't give attention to the... The left is not doing itself any favours by eating itself. If you're spending more time getting angry about an overly sensitive, likely teenager on Twitter who's decided that Dunkin' Donuts is problematic for whatever reason than you are with, um, you know, the, the right that you're supposed to be fighting, then maybe check yourself on that One Love Manchester comes into this as it was an extraordinary example of unity can actually happen across a political spectrum. When people were all there with maybe different opinions, with different ways of processing it, but everyone just decided to have a lovely night around pop music, the good things about it exposed that the narrative of love can really work from a certain perspective, and the flaws with One Love Manchester exposed the ways in which it doesn't work when it becomes hollow and vacuous. So it showed the spectrum of love, of communal love, and all its uh, messy glory and problems.
2: This has been Series 1 of Spectacles of Pop Culture Podcast. Thank you for listening.
1: Will we be a Firefly, or will we be a Seinfeld? <laughs> Who
2: knows? Who knows? Um, oh God
1: forbid, a Simpsons. God,
2: yeah. Please, if you enjoyed this, look, we're going to be back in 2019. But in the meantime, we want you to go and spread the word about our podcast and get other people to listen. So find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Spectacles Podcast, Twitter, Spectacles Pod. And we'll put things on there that relate to some of the things we've talked about and discussed things. With anyone you like, and uh, we'll give you updates on when we're next going to be putting episodes up. Hopefully, in early 2019, we'll have a batch. Um.
1: A very sincere thank you to all who've listened religiously and to all who've listened once or twice.
2: Stephen, what's going to happen after the end credits?
0: I don't know yet, but stay tuned. It
1: It might be a surprise. uh, Our favorite freelance reporter.
0: Favourite investigative journalist Yeah He was here at the start And he'll be here at the end
2: (laughs) Spectacles, a pop culture podcast Was presented by Tom Bird, Stephen Hyam And Ever W The series was created by Ever W And the episode was edited by Tom Bird With Ever W The music was conceived and composed by the presenters And performed by Tom Bird Our logo was kindly designed By Sarah Saville and Thomas Smee If you have enjoyed what you've heard today, then please find us on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to rate us, review us, and subscribe to us for new episodes. And don't forget to connect with us through social media at Spectacles Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, or at Spectacles Pod on Twitter, or email us on spectaclespodcast at gmail.com. Our next batch of episodes will air in 2019, so stay tuned to our social media for updates. Oh hi, it's me celebrity
0: provocateur, Twitter curator, and professional thinker, Alan Arndale. So there they go, riding off into the sunset in various directions. Tom, Eva, and the other male voice. Did you hear the pride in their tones as they successfully completed their fourteenth episode of analytical educational entertainment? entertainment? I did. But the game is up, because I, Alan Aaron Arndale, have been listening to your podcast, and the results of your audit are in. Five months ago, I asked the question, why should I care? And you have had over 21 hours of audio content to answer that question. The new question is, do I care? In your first episode, you explored the topic of entitlement in internet fandoms. This complex discussion covered the shifting dynamic of power between artist and audience, with consumers being empowered by the mouthpiece of social media. At first, I wondered why any self-respecting human being would care about the puerile gibberings of immature Reddit and Tumblr users, when they could just close their laptops and go for a walk, or meet a friend for coffee, or choose to enjoy the new Star Wars movie if they wanted to enjoy the new Star Wars movie. You did, however, successfully portray a connection between the hateful ideologies which germinate in such communities and the rise of destructive political movements very much in play in the real world. However, have you considered that in Star Wars The Last Jedi, the new Star Wars film directed by Ryan Ruin Johnson, Finn and Rose go to the casino on Canto Byte to meet the codebreaker, who they are told is the only person in the world who can decode the First Order's technology. But then they are put in prison, and in the same cell they meet Benicio del Toro, who is another person who can... who can hack into the First Order's technology. This is too big of a plot hole contrivance, and proves that this is a terrible film. Following your first episode... You offered searing rabbit-based judgment and parenting advice in the classification of childhood characters. Then you covered the broad topic of gender in Hollywood. But I ask you, how can you discuss the topic of femininity in abstract representative form when only 33.3 recurring percent of you are a woman? And how can you discuss women in the workplace when you yourselves were not in a workplace? To discuss issues of gender, your panel must be exactly or greater than 80% that gender. This is exactly the same thing as Donald Trump's all-male panel deciding to limit women's reproductive rights. After listening to your discussions about representations of Scotland on screen and the demise of quality film criticism, I became both highly indignant about cultural appropriation of the oppressed minority Scottish people, and wished to crawl into my bed and weep for an age about the fact that cinema sins exists. Fortunately, you followed the critics' discussion with some quality criticism, and my faith was restored in humanity. You have danced between lighter and heavier topics, with just as much grace as a moderately clumsy gazelle. On the lighter side are discussions about movie trailers and fairy tales. On the heavier side, analysis of interview techniques, and the manipulation of information in Remix culture. I thought a conversation about YouTube poops would be delightful and fun, but instead I had to wrap myself up in my duvy and weep once again. When my new boyfriend came to check if I wanted to come down for dinner, I didn't know if he was talking to me or if a computer program had recorded his speech patterns and was imitating him like President Obama. When I went downstairs to eat my dinner, I didn't know if my sausages had been made from a horrifically farmed and slaughtered pig or if a 3D printer had recorded the flavor and texture of a sausage and printed one out. When I realized this didn't matter, I ate my sausages and enjoyed them. I would recommend that everyone make the change to imagining their food is 3D printed, as this will alleviate the guilt you feel over the horrific treatment of living creatures in the meat industry and the disastrous environmental effects of rearing livestock. If you feel good, it will taste good too. I was glad to hear you turn your attention to current and pertinent topics of 2000's reality television programming. Simon Cowell, Gillian McKeith, Mary Berry and Dr. Christian Chesel are basically the new gods of the Greek pantheon. Taking the places of Zeus, Hera, Poseidon and Walt Disney's Hercules I watch a lot of reality television, being a self-employed internet broadcaster. My other favourite show is Cash in the Attic. If you could make a show about British Empire and Cash in the Attic, that would make me so happy. And finally, the commodification of love. I was expecting a nihilistic history and analysis of Jane Austen, Hallmark, Disney, and the wedding industry. This was not what I got. Some final observations. By me. Alan. The episodes where Tom talks most tend to fill me with the most existential dread, and the episodes where the other chap talks a lot tend to be the most frivolous. For this reason, Eva is my favourite presenter. Your most successful episode, when early show displays of goodwill listens are taken into account, is the one about YouTube poops. Have you considered just making a podcast about different kinds of remixes? Also consider that this episode is significantly the shortest in your back catalogue. Do you think that perhaps the people would like you more if you just talked less? Well, your audit is complete, and you all deserve congratulations for talking for more than an entire 24 hours into microphones. Even if the things you said were insubstantial, that is a significant achievement. Not to mention the fact that some people actually listened, and that's quite good too. I give you a C minus plus, which is just a little bit less good than a C plus. I, Arndale, will be listening out for season two. If you have enjoyed my insights, look out for more of my work, and get in on the Arndalian action. Look out for Quit Smoking with Alan Arndale, a hypnotherapy course, volumes one through seven. Now available in all good branches of Iceland, or on prescription from your doctor look out for get your shit together a self-help course by Alan Arndale how I learned to stop worrying and love my couch the Alan Arndale story how to look good naked with Alan Arndale how to look good clothed with Alan Arndale how to look at people but not look like you're looking at them in coffee shops parks or the supermarket with Alan Arndale And stay tuned for a sneak peek at my new project. The Audible Collection. The Holy Bible by Various Artists. Read by Alan Arndale. Chapter 1. Genesis. Now I'm going to level with you. It's not the band they're talking about. I actually don't know what Genesis means in this context, but they're not talking about Peter Gabriel. As far as I can tell, the only Peter in this book is actually called Simon. So, you know, just temper your expectations. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said let there be light. Then there was light, and God saw the light, and it was good. And God divided the light from... Shit, this is a long book.